Hi, and welcome to the second episode of the Microbiology Lab pod. On today's pod, we have brought on a special guest to continue the discussion we had at the end of last month's pod uh, on discovering novel resistance genes. We will also do a deep dive into different aspects of bacterial virulence. First, we will talk about how non-pathogenic bacteria become virulent. Then we will discuss the link between virulence and competition between different microbes. We will then move on to how we could potentially reduce virulence using fatty acids before we finally go into how bacteria can avoid the immune system. But before we dive in, I just want to say that we're recording this on the 7th of May, just to give you some kind of a reference point on where we are right now in time. And here with me to discuss all these things are Anna Abruma, who is a postdoc in the lab. Um, she's working in the Embark project on monitoring uh, antibiotic resistance in the environment. And she has a background in, for example, high throughput sequencing. How are you doing, Anna? I'm fine, thank you. And uh, are you staying at home or are you actually at work today? Uh, today I'm at the office. First time in a few weeks. <laughs> ah, very cool. Uh, I'm also joined by Javi Lakunchi, uh, who is a master's student in the lab, and she is working on antibiotic resistance in Pseudomonas aegrinosa, and she has a background in biotechnology. Hi, Havila, how are you doing? Hi, I'm fine, thank you. Well, you're still stuck at home, I guess. <laughs> yes, very boring. <laughs> so not so nice then, perhaps. Yes, I would say that. And finally, I'm also here with Emil Burman, who's also a master's student in the lab, who is looking into disturbances in microbial communities. Uh, he is just finishing up his uh, thesis in molecular biology very soon. How are you doing, Emil? Doing very well, Johan. That's very nice to hear. How is the thesis work coming along? Uh, well, uh, I'm doing revision of the revision of the revision. I'm critiquing, critiquing my own work a lot, uh, trying to actually get it to a state where I can actually not be embarrassed by it. So uh, I think it's going pretty well so far, but I mean, who knows? Maybe tomorrow I will look at it and be like, oh, this is crap. Why am I even doing this? Oh. I have to say that I actually had the pleasant experience of looking at my own master thesis several years down the line, and I was like, this is not as bad as I imagined it. <laughs> so I hope that you will be able to feel the same feeling in a couple of years. Let's hope so. Um, but it's hard to do the short-term assessment of your own work. That's really, really hard. Um, so most of us are, as I said, working from home, um, but large parts of Europe are now taking their first baby steps towards releasing the lockdowns that have gone on for almost two months now. So how are you feeling about those developments? Um, I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, so far now, I just feel like it's not good. I'm not doing okay. So I just hate it. So I think this might be the same fact for everybody. So they might be feeling a little bit better now that this is being released. Yeah. Is it a good choice to, re to release the lockdowns now? <laughs> Mentally, yes, but if you see it globally, I don't think it's a good way to do that. Anna, you're, you're apparently at work today. So, I mean, what do you feel about the rest of Europe also starting to go back to work? Um, yeah, it's very difficult at the moment to predict how situation going to develop. So, personally, I think it would be nice to come back to the normal life, but at the same time, it's hard to know what's going to happen when everyone starts to live normal life again. Yeah, and I think there's also the question of how, to what extent you could call it normal, because I guess it's not really anywhere going back to how it was in January. It's more of a 
slowly getting back into some kind of daily routine as opposed to just being stuck at home. So Emil, do you have any thoughts on this before we move on? I mean, it's very hard to actually know uh, what the outcomes will be. I mean, you can look at different models and say like, oh, uh, if we, for example, did as we did here in Sweden, we would have a more uh, desirable effect on the, on the society as a whole itself. But then, of course, uh, you might have more deaths uh, as we see here in Sweden compared to our neighbors. But what would ultimately be the, uh, the societal impact? I don't know. It's, uh, it's hard to tell. It's very hard to tell. And I mean, it's also so much dependent on how much people will voluntarily stick to the restrictions that have been in place. If, if, I mean, if you, look at, if you look at how Sweden has handled the situation, uh, we have not so much had these kind of mandatory measures, but been a lot more putting the responsibility on the, on the individuals to follow their common sense practices. Um, and if the rest of Europe are as good as Sweden, I'm not, I'm not see, seeing, how, I'm not seeing this kind of giant uptick. I mean, cases will probably start trickling upwards again, but it might actually be a very slow trickling upwards. The question is really whether if you've been on lockdown for two months, whether you're willing to still adhere to social distancing, but voluntarily. Uh, so that I guess would, for me, that's the big experiment coming up here. So first up on the scientific content of the pod today is our interview with uh, our special guest, Marlies Böhm. Hello, Marlies. How are you doing? Hey, everyone. I'm doing fine. As you can see, I'm not sitting in the lab or at the office. I'm at home. <laughs> and home is where? <laughs> home is currently in Germany, so a bit farther away from you guys. <laughs> Welcome to the pod, Marlies. It's very good to have you here. Thank you. Um, so Marlies is one of my former colleagues uh, from um, uh, Joachim Larsson's lab here in Gothenburg. And you're actually on the pod today to talk about something we talked a little bit about on the last pod, uh, which is the discovery or how to discover new antibiotic resistance genes, specifically genes that we have not yet seen in pathogens. Um, and there's two different reasons why we're doing this today. Uh, first, we talked about this on our previous episode, as I said. And I thought it would be nice to sort of expand this uh, discussion a little bit. And second, you also just recently published two papers in less than a week's time, uh, one in Microbiome and one in the journal Antibiotics. Um, and these are on, if I got, got it right, two completely novel resistance genes that you have discovered. So congratulations on those two papers, Marlies. Thank you. And uh, I would, to be honest, say only one of them is completely novel. The other one I would still call a variant of something known. <laughs> okay, so you will actually have to get back to that a little bit on yep. what you mean with novel and a variant. Uh, but let's start with, just to get us, uh, get us all on the same page here, could you describe a little bit about the research that you've done in those two recent papers and give us some top-line hot takes from them? Yeah, so from the methods part, um, most of what I did was functional metagenomics. And uh, from what we actually want to do, you already described a little bit of it. The main topic was to discover novel resistance genes and not just 
simply something new, but something that's also important for the clinics and for treatment of infections. And um, therefore, we were specifically looking at the mobile novel resistance genes. And um, so far, the problem with the discovery of resistance genes is that we always discover them after they've moved to the clinics. So whenever there are infections that cannot be treated anymore, someone starts looking into this and then recognizes a gene or several genes responsible for that. And so we're, we're trying to find them before they get to that stage and before they spread so far and wide. Um, and at the same time, we don't want to find many genes that have only little chances of actually getting to that point because they're unlikely to ever show up in any pathogens. So we um, applied specifically functional metagenomics on um, metagenomic DNA containing lots of integrons. And I think um, you guys all talked about integrons in the last pod too. Oh yes, we did because Anna brought a paper on integrons in the uh, uh, in the Arctic. Yeah, so I think you already discussed a bit about how widespread integrons actually are, and um, that they're also quite important for the spread of resistance genes. And um, yeah, we specifically looked at um, the gene cassette array and whether we can find novel resistance genes in there. And um, since I said we found um, one actually novel resistance genes. That's the one we called GAR, which is standing for garosamine-specific aminoglycoside resistance. And uh, the other gene we detected is actually two genes, and they are um, class C beta-lactamases, but a new family of the class C beta-lactamases. So still variant, but new variant. <laughs> okay, so... You talked a little bit here in the beginning about something that you called functional metagenomics, uh, which brings me to a, a related question here. I mean, what is functional metagenomics and how do you go about to discover new resistance genes? Could you sort of walk us through this process uh, very, very briefly, because I imagine this is quite complicated protocol? I'll try to keep it short. <laughs> um, so functional metagenomics starts out with the uh, just a DNA sample from wherever you want to take it. And um, then you look for a specific function that this DNA can encode for, in this case, resistance. And um, so you take this DNA, amplify the part that you want in there, and then um, clone it into a, a plasmid, where you, which is then basically the library um, that you're working with. You put that into the bacteria you want to test it in, and there you can screen for the different resistances that you want to look for. That's the very short overview. <laughs> and um, of course, the most important part in the beginning is where to get the samples, what samples are interesting to look at, um, what do you actually want to find in them. Do, in the case of integrons, do the samples contain enough integrons that you can do the analysis? Then when you look for resistance genes, what resistances do you want to check for? <laughs> and um, so there are a few planning questions in the beginning, but uh, when you start um, with the analysis, it contains um, a lot of basic cloning during the library preparation, and then lots of plates containing different concentrations of different antibiotics, where you then scrape off all the resistant clones that grow. 
So in this case, you're not really selecting the clones, you're actually scraping the entire plate. Yes, that's the spe special part that we wanted to look for, because um, functional metagenomics has been used before to check for resistances, and usually um, they took specific clones and uh, checked them for their resistance. And our goal is to check for novel and mobile resistance genes. And there we have the problem that in most environments there are already some known resistance genes and they are probably much more common than the novel ones that we're looking for. So um, we went to a different approach and not just picked single clones and sequenced them, but we actually scraped off everything that grew on our selective plates and amplified those inserts from the plasmids we had there and sequenced those with PacBio long read sequencing and then looked in silico if we find something novel in there by comparing it to the RestFinder database and excluding all those reads containing already known genes. So you said that you're using long read sequencing. Isn't that pretty error prone? Yes, it is. That's true. But um, we can get their uh, high repetition rate of what we are sequencing in there. And that means we can basically use that um, high coverage as an internal control for the errors we get in there and use the consensus reads for um, actually looking at it. So that means the actual error rate in the end, as uh, the base calling error rate, is quite low since we can get the higher coverage. But of course, there might still be sequencing artifacts in there if the consensus building, for example, doesn't work as planned, which happens. <laughs> yeah. It's a very cool protocol. I, I, I like how it's, how it's so laser focused on what you actually want to get out in the end, as opposed to being very wide and just trying to catch anything. In that case, if you, if you really like to search for something specifically, it's very good for that, but of course that makes it difficult to transfer the protocol or the methods onto something else to use. True. So good point. It still it stays very specific. It's, it's, it's a good point, but I, I mean, it's some, sometimes research has to be specific as well, right? It, <laughs> yeah. It's almost like it gets a higher value if you if you can specifically answer the question you want to answer. When you run through this protocol, I mean, how, how many genes do you get out? Uh, how many new genes do you find in a typical sample or a typical environment? The problem is I don't think there is anything like a typical sample. Um, the first time we did it, we used, uh, and that's the one where the paper is published on, we used a sample from an Indian river sediment that was highly contaminated with uh, sewage, raw sewage, um, antibiotics and all sorts that you get in yeah, urban environment, but also industrial production of pharmaceuticals. So it was a really highly contaminated sample. And um, there were lots of integrants in there. And um, there are basically two theories of what we will find in, we would find in there. The first theory was that because there are so many integrants and because this is so highly contaminated, we will find a lot of new resistance genes because that's a hotspot where they can develop and or and transfer from um, environmental bacteria or non-pathogenic bacteria to human pathogens because all of it is kind of mixed in in that sense. Yeah, I guess it's also an environment where you have a selection pressure or potentially have a selection pressure which could fixate yes, such a gene if it's if it's on if it if it sort of jumps into an, an integral or it's picked up by an integral. Yes, yes. So that was the theory that this is. Um, perfect environment for something like that to happen. 
On the other hand, it could also be that there are already so many known ones that due to kind of a founder effect, new ones wouldn't have a chance to get fixed in the pathogens. So it was kind of, yeah, we will see whether we find several or nothing or we will see. <laughs> in the end, we found in that sample uh, one actual novel gene. Um, so maybe a bit less than expected, but not all that surprising. But, but you describe more than one in the paper, right? Mm, so in the paper that describes the aminoglycoside resistance gene, um, we had two more open reading frames that were interesting candidates that we also checked because what is important after the functional metagenomics, after detecting in silico in the sequences that we found something, but we also actually go back and check in the lab whether it really works. Yeah. And at that point, the other two candidates kind of flaked out and didn't give any resistance anymore. So those two other candidates were um, beta-lactam candidate genes. And um, there we had, the, or we came to the conclusion that they probably resulted from satellite colonies because beta-lactams are uh, secreted by the bacteria that produce them. So if some colonies are growing very close to each other, and that happens because in, especially for the beta-lactams, I had uh, thousands of colonies on one plate, then they can just uh, provide an en environment where, where growth is possible for genes that, or for clones that actually aren't resistant. So those two turned out to be false positives. Okay. So, I mean, the... The, the yield in terms of novel resistance genes might actually not be that big. Or, I mean, maybe it's hard to assess that because it's not, as you said, there's not a typical environment. Yeah, but, um, well, we tried another environment too that was a lot more pristine than the ones we had there where we got the samples from Antarctica and tested those. And um, there we had lots of, different candidate genes. So, I mean, we didn't go into it and see, oh, hmm, there's not much in there, but we go, got into there and said, mm, let's check the first 12 perfect candidates and check the others later. Let's first see how many are in those. <laughs> so it seems as if environments that are not that close to um, actual human habitation might have more chances of containing that. But the other study I was talking about um, is not finished yet. So we're still in the process of verifying that they're actually giving resistance. Um, but it seems for the moment that there are more candidates in more pristine samples than in the super contaminated ones. So <clears throat> what you've been describing here is essentially that's, that's the way you've been doing it. I guess there must also be other ways to discover new resistance genes. Is there anything you would like to sort of compare your protocol to? Um, yeah, it's a bit difficult to actually compare it to because most of the successful ways of, con of detecting new resistance genes are also using versions of functional metagenomics. And of course, the version of functional metagenomics that I use uh, is a bit different than other versions of functional metagenomics because I'm only checking for gene cassettes, which are rather short DNA fragments, and some other functional metagenomics protocols go for several KB long stretches of DNA. And they, of course, were different. Um, but in, in general, it's still going into a mixed sample and trying to find something with a specific function. And that works quite well for detecting novel genes. 
Otherwise, it's always possible to go back to some clinical strain collections. They are usually not that well characterized, so they might contain a bunch of new resistance genes too that nobody has looked at so far. But that's very time and work consuming for someone to start sequencing thousands of strains and then check all possible resistance yeah. genes in there. Um, there's also a possibility... But I think, sorry for interrupting you, but I guess that's sort of the that's sort of the kind of study that we discussed on the last pod where they had been uh, resequencing re a clinical isolate and found this new QNR variant. Uh, although that's, mm -hmm. yeah. as I said last month as well, that's not a completely new resistance gene. It's more like a new gene variant to go back to that discussion. Um, but I mean, that's, so that an example, that's an example of that other strategy just, that, you just, uh, that you just mentioned. The other thing I wanted to say is that, that um, it's always possible to try to find um, something in the lab by creating it via mutating a strain or do some random mutagenesis on a gene where it's possible that it might become a resistance gene and uh, develop from something that has another function into a resistance gene. But these approaches are very artificial and also very time and work consuming. They sound and very tedious. <laughs> Yes, so that's not, not the most feasible approach for finding something, and you have no idea whether something like that will ever appear in the clinics. True. And therefore, most, most really relevant um, approaches use functional metagenomic and check what's actually out there. But I guess that, I mean, that also speaks to what the, uh, what the cool quirk of your protocol is, that you're specifically targeting these integron-born resistance genes. So it means that something that has already jumped into an integron is, I mean, even if you discover less numbers of resistance genes, those genes are much more likely to actually become a clinical problem because they can be transferred in a much, much more straightforward way. Because if you just chop up DNA randomly, you will get a lot of chromosomal resistance genes or genes that have resistance functions when they are overexpressed. Um, that might not be very clinically relevant. But if you go for the integron specifically, I guess the clinical relevance should be slightly higher. What do you say about that? Yeah, you can assume that that is slightly higher because we already have quite a lot of information about the integrons and we know that they're a super successful system and that whatever is um, part of the integron doesn't cause super high resistant, um, fitness costs for um, the host strain because what's in an integron can be um, yeah, cut out immediately and left out once it gives too high resistant, uh, fitness costs. So um, we know that this is a successful system. And while integrons themselves are not mobile, they're um, very often or almost always um, located within mobile elements or conjugative plasmids or something that is also known to move between different strains and species. So um, the mobility is then not a question anymore. And for the resistance problem, mobility is the greatest issue because, well, if something develops at one point and stays at that one point and can't move anywhere else, it's not going to be a glo global problem. So the mobility is a really important factor there. Yeah, I think that's a good, that's a very good point. I mean, you have to either be very transmissible within your clone uh, or be able to transfer to other clones to be 
uh, to be a global threat, really. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, but that also like assumes that genes cannot be mobilized, right? But I mean, as we, we as we are aware, even most of the chromosomal antibiotic resistance genes can in some way be mobilized. So how would I don't think that's a correct assumption that you need to just, if it's just stable in the chromosome and not be able to move, then it's not a problem. I think that even if they emerge in an, on a non-mobile element, that they could potentially become a problem. Yeah, well, of course, you can't see it absolute in saying that whatever is chromosomal can't be um, a threat in that way. That's, of course, true because they can get mobilized. But the probability that they do it is much lower as, as if you have something that already is mobile. Yeah, of, of, of course. course, you're right. Other stuff can also be mobilized. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, uh, bo both, of the, both of those points are good. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a probability thing. And it's also, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think that our knowledge about how often things get, get mobilized from the chromosome onto a mobile genetic element, that knowledge is really poor. Um, partially because it's really hard to assay that. Yeah, how would you? Yeah, and it's also difficult to say because it varies from species to species and um, from gene yeah. uh, from genomic region to region. And but the, I think there are some evidence for the known resistance genes um, that they have been mobilized once. And from there, they move on to other places. But of course, that's just for one specific resistance gene where that was shown. And other genes have been mobilized several times. But it's uh, so far, it looks like one single gene hasn't been mobilized hundreds of times in different um, strains or species. But, I guess it, but more like there's one or two mobilization processes and then that mobilized version moves from one to the I guess, but that, that, the problem with that type of analysis, to be quite technical here, is really that if you have a founder effect where the first event is really successful, even if the gene is mobilized again, that's going to be diminished by this first founder event. So it's, it's, it's another one of those pretty tricky questions to go about. Yeah, it's, it's difficult because, I mean, if you try to recreate the process in the lab, which isn't uh, simple from the beginning, um, you will also not know how much you have the founder effect and how many other if effects that might change that. And, well, too many variables. Yeah. And also, I mean, one of the typical uh, ways of trying to assaying this uh, mobilization rate is that you measure it through a horizontally transferred plasmid that you detect in some other species. And the problem with that is that it also includes this horizontal gene transfer step. So it's not super straightforward how you would set up that experiment uh, in a way that is only measuring the mobilization rate and does that in a fair way. Yeah, <laughs> there you are completely right. <laughs> okay, um, so I mean, given that the genes that you are discovering actually have a strong indication of that they are already mobile, I mean, how much of a threat is this really? Is this something we should be scared of, novel resistance genes popping up? Well, generally, yes, because um, there's something we don't know anything about. So it's very difficult to react to it. But um, I wouldn't say it's a super high threat because there are already a lot of resistance genes out there and the new ones are not something like super resistance genes. They also have limited functions and um, 
they're not any more dangerous than any other resistance genes that we already know of. Um, and then it also always depends on the function that the gene itself has. For example, the aminoglycoside resistance gene that we discovered and described in the microbiome paper, that one doesn't give resistance against all aminoglycosides. So it's, again, not a super resistance gene. It gives resistance only against a specific subset of those. So it will add an additional resistance to the pattern that some strains already have. They might already have two or three different aminoglycoside resistance genes, and this one's another one. So it's a problem in the clinics because there will be less and less antibiotics to treat the strain with. But there are other resistance genes that have the exact same function and might pose the exact same threat. So, I mean, from a, from a scale from sharks taking over the world to COVID-19, where would you place the, <laughs> the threat? <laughs> Closer to COVID-19, that sounds more realistic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's, it's it's something that could realistically happen, but it's it's less severe than COVID nineteen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's great. So, uh, just a final scientific question on this: like, what would you say would be the the biggest bottlenecks in this process? Is it something that you could scale up and make it even better, quicker, more high throughput? Well, I would still put the bottleneck at the, the manual check of the sequences where you have to find out that you really have a complete read there, that you can see that the primers you used for the initial amplifications are there so that you know you have an entire cassette array and can say this is the gene responsible for the resistance and there cannot be another one explaining this specific resistance type in there. Um, where you can say, yes, it was selected on this antibiotic, but not on the other antibiotics that you checked for. And um, that's the step that takes the most time, since you have to do it for each open reading frame yourself and manually, and you have to check each of the functions. So I would say that is the actual bottleneck. Where it, also, you... it also sounds like that's the most boring part. <laughs> and it's boring when you're in the beginning start and don't really know what you're looking for, because then you spend lots of time for it. If you are a bit more experienced and know how to look for it, it doesn't take that long anymore. And then it's getting actually interesting. But in the beginning, I admit it was a bit boring. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much. Uh, tedious. <laughs> so thank you very much, Marlies, for enlightening us on this, um, on this to topic. It's fascinating to hear. Uh, how people go about discovering new resistance genes. I think that we should uh, potentially also invite uh, Fanny Berglund or Fredrik Boglund, who have been uh, using computational methods uh, to discover new variants of known families of resistance genes. So just to just to end on a completely different note, I mean, you're you're seeing now that you're back in Germany after you're staying in Sweden. Uh, how is your coronavirus experience there? I think it was quite fascinating to move from Sweden to Germany during the corona times. <laughs> it's interesting if there are no planes leaving Gothenburg <laughs> and you have to take the ship and the train. Uh, but on the other hand, it's quite nice to sit for six hours on a basically empty train and you have as much space as you want. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but of course, I mean, if you pass the borders right now, even within the European Union, there are police controls. But, um, and in Germany, there are slightly stricter rules about Corona than in Sweden. 
but well, you can get used to it. But I have to say that Germans are pretty surprised about the fact that the Swedish people don't have those strict rules. <laughs> did you, did they quarantine you when you came from Sweden? Um, not really. I mean, they said that I have to call the authorities when I arrive. So in the sense okay. of they don't check actually where you're going. They check that you're a citizen of the country and um, to which city you want to go. But then they don't call you and check up if you really have told them that you're there now. Um, so they, in that case, they do rely on the fact that you yourself are complying voluntarily. Um, but they do check that only citizens are entering the country at the moment. Okay, Marlies, thank you very much for your particip uh, participation on the pod today. Uh, it's been great having you. Uh, it's been a good experience for everyone, I think. I hope that you've been enjoying yourself too. Thank you very much for inviting me. <laughs> so next up here on the pod is um, a discussion on how E. coli gains virulence by mutating essential lipopolysaccharide transporters. And this is a discussion that will be based on a study published in PLOS Pathogens about two weeks ago. And I think you even have something to say on this, right? Yes. Uh, thank you very much, Johan. So uh, I will talk a little bit about this paper, uh, as Johan said, from PLOS, Plus Pathogens at the, that was published at the end of March 2020. Uh, so the title of this particular paper is called The Non-Pathogenic Echevichia coli Acquires Virulence by Mutating a Growth Essential LPS Transporter. Very mouthful, but relax. I will walk you through the, uh, the aim and a little bit of the methods and how they actually did this entire paper. Uh, so first and foremost, the author talks a little bit about uh, that there's like a gap of knowledge between how uh, pathogens actually evolutionarily require, acquire uh, virulence mechanisms. But there were a lot of description of uh, how these virulence mechanisms actually work, but not how they acquired them. So what they did is that they took a domestic non-pathogenic uh, E. coli and uh, grew it together with a, um, with a mutagen. Uh, which is an, a chemical agent that induces uh, mutations in the genome. Uh, and uh, they then took, uh, they grew this, they took this E. coli and they inserted them into the hemolymph, which is the like liquidy stuff inside insects of silkworms, uh, silkworm moths. Uh, then the silkworm moths died, they plated them, and then they redid this entire process for a total of 21 times, where they picked the... Uh, colonies from uh, the silkworm moth hemolymph uh, that was most efficient at killing the, uh, the, the silkworm uh, host. Uh, so they did this and they did uh, sequence the genome of these uh, individual mutants that they had that was most efficient at doing the killing. Uh, and they found that there were two genes that they uh, were very uh, essential for this particular mechanism. And it was <clears throat> lipopolysaccharide protein transporters, LPTE and LPTD. And these two had two specific amino acid uh, substitutions 
which they did a lot of like in silico and like modeling stuff later in the paper, which I won't go that deep, deep into because it's not my area of expertise. Uh, but I will just mention that uh, they saw the substitution, uh, which changed one amino acid residue to uh, the other polarity. So that would mean they were, that it went from a polar to apolar and from apolar to polar on, uh, on uh, yeah, LPT and LPTD, LPTD respectively, uh, which then changed the conformation of the LPS transport complex, which was the main, the main mechanism that they changed this particular mutation. So why is this important? Well, this transporter is uh, transporting a lot of lipopolysaccharides to the outer membrane of gram-negative cells. And um, if this doesn't work, they, the gram-negative cells uh, can't maintain membrane structure. And turgorosity, uh, which is, uh, yeah, they, they just die if, if that can't happen. They also speculated that, huh, these two mechanisms, that's really cool that this is uh, actually a thing. Uh, so... They wanted to do some other analysis to actually see uh, what made it a better pathogen. So they tested the hemolymph itself and saw that there were some anti, uh, antimicrobial peptides inside of the hemolymph of the silkworm moth, which uh, these mutants were more resistant against, which indicated that they weren't like more they weren't more efficient at actually like taking up nutrients or like killing the host. It was just that they were more resistant against uh, the defense of the host itself. So they saw that in silkworm. So they thought that, huh, this is cool. This is a mechanism. Is it the same in mammals? So they tested uh, blood serum of uh, rats. Uh, I think uh, it was mice, but I might be making this up with some other yes. paper. Uh, yeah, I th yeah, it, it was mouse. My bad. Uh, and they saw that it was also more resistant uh, than um, uh, than the wild type, which was really cool. Uh, and they concluded that it, this was another mechanism that they could become resistant against the complement uh, of the mammalian immune system. Which is this is now we're now we're getting somewhere. Now we're getting really cool. Uh, and uh, they also saw that, like, okay, since E. coli is uh, a uh, gut pathogen in humans, uh, they wanted to see if they could, uh, if this mutant was also better at invading guts of mammals themselves. So they inoculated, uh, I believe it was four uh, mice, of uh, with this uh, E. coli uh, and with uh, for for the control. But they found that for uh, colonization of the gut, they were not better than uh, wild type. I mean, it's still cool, but it's it's not really cool, goddammit. But I sort of, now, uh, now I, I might be getting ahead of you here, but I sort of think that that indicates that this is a pretty silkworm-specific mechanism, so that, I mean, they are really gaining some type of resistance towards the kind of antibiotics that are being released by the silkworm, and I mean, maybe that's useful for other other species as well, but yeah. it's not a like a panacea for everything. You can't no. you can't no. use this mechanism, these these mutations in these um, LPS transporters to be resistant to everything or to be virulent in any system. It's a quite specific uh, mechanism, right? Well, yeah. I mean, like it's the defense against somewhat of a what is a chemical innate immunity, right? Because that's what chemical innate immunity does. It targets the outer membrane, so you can become resistant against that. But if you 
evolve in a system that has, let's say, adaptive responses as we in mammals have as well, then you would need to have additional mutations in order to evade that uh, immunity as well. Yeah, uh, I can imagine That's a good point. Uh, if you were to do the, yeah, if you were to do a similar response, uh, a similar um, what do you say evolution in uh, let's say you would do it in 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 mice, if you could even do it, I don't know. Uh, then I would I would imagine that um, uh, you could see maybe some additional mutations that would help in the adaptive immunity as well. These mutants uh, increased the expression of outer membrane vesicles, which in of itself could uh, help with some of the cytotoxic effects of some antimicrobial peptides that aren't just of mammal and animal origin. It could be for other antibiotics as well. I know that they talked about some, uh, uh, some other antibiotics that targeted the cell membrane, and they confirmed that uh, these mutants were more resistant against some uh, antibiotics that targeted the cell membrane as well. Uh, sorry, the outer cell membrane. So what do these vesicles do? Uh, so if I understood it correctly, it like adsorbs. Uh, onto the onto the antibiotic molecule itself, so it can't reach its target, so it becomes sort of like a uh, it's a film around the cells that protects them from the chemicals that want to do them harm. The one thing that really stuck out to me when I read the paper is that from this method that they did, I don't see how they really landed on these two particular mutations, because they just did a whole like really unspecific mutagenesis. Uh, that could affect the entire genome of E. coli. And then they just said, oh, we see these two mutations here affect this entire way. How do they actually confirm this, that it's just these two point mutations? They don't describe that as far as I understood it, like anywhere. So I'm, I'm, it's something's weird here, but I'm not quite sure what. I don't know. I mean, do, do you say that they don't do any kind of um, verification study? They don't show because, it because they have I'm, they have these you know whole genome sequencing steps somewhere. Yes, but they don't. Yes, they they sequence the entire genome to like see where the mutations mm -hmm. are. But from what I understood, they didn't like show uh, any any like selection criteria. They just say, oh, we did whole genome sequencing. So I mean, you, you, what you're saying is that they're not really going back and reintroducing those specific mutations with in in the same isogenic background. Yes. So if they do that, they should have more clearly specified that in the paper. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because exactly. then, then I mean, this, maybe... there could really be other mutations as well that influence yes. uh, the fitness of these uh, transporters, of, uh, the fitness of the mutations in these transporters, of course, but it could also be that you actually have other mutations that is conferring the entire mechanism, although that would be a quite unlikely uh, explanation. But it's, it's impossible to rule it out unless you have an isogenic yeah. mutant. Exactly. Our next paper is a paper on how bacteria in a model community that forms biofilms uh, can use stress responses to detect and adapt to competitors. And this is a paper that was published in Current Biology about a month ago. I think this is actually a really cool paper. I will try to cut myself short because I'm really good at talking about cool stuff. Um, but in brief, what they're doing is that they're investigating 
um, something that they call the competition sensing hypothesis. And this hypothesis states that bacterial stress, re stress response systems can detect competitors in an ecological system. So what they're doing here is that they build a three species model community, or actually it's a two species model community, uh, and one of the two species have two different strains with different phenotypes present. And then they, they run a competition screen where they grow these bacteria in pairs and in um, a triple community. And they do expression analysis uh, through a very elaborative system that I'm not going to go into detail with here, but it's based on fluorescent markers that are activated by certain transcription factors. Uh, so they can see which transcription factors that are activated in different, uh, by different stressors, for example. Um, and then they can get a, a fluorescent response to that and they can sort those out via facts. Uh, that's a pretty cool uh, way of looking at expression in uh, multi-species communities. Uh, and then they do a lot of valid validatory experiments on this. And I think that's actually one of the coolest parts of this paper, that they don't stop by doing a high throughput analysis. They also go into detail and check, are these results actually relevant? Let's start a little bit with um, this mixed, mixed species biofilm model that they build. And I think this is interesting because we are working in our lab on a mixed species biofilm forming model as well, but from a completely different background. And that's the hitchhikers of the rhizosphere model community de developed by Johannesburg's lab in, uh, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, and if you want to read more about that, uh, you should read the paper they published on that last year, or you should read everything that we will publish in the future. Um, but we actually haven't published in this community yet ourselves. The cool thing about this is that they build their own little model system here where they have one E. coli strain and two different salmonella strains. And one of those is worse at forming biofilm and one of them is better at forming biofilms. And they have some specific uh, genetic mutations in those two strains that give them different phenotypes. Uh, but that also means that they would have a pretty likely competitive relationship between those two salmonella strains. So what they do then is that they, um, so they use something called differential fluorescence induction, and they can use that protocol to enrich for pools of promoters that are specifically uh, expressed in only the mixed species biofilm communities, as opposed to the single species communities or single species um, growth or in planktonic growth. So they can actually distinguish between what's planktonic and what's biofilm and what is single species versus multi-species. Then they spend quite a bit of time describing what they're doing in this community. But uh, what, they, what I think is really cool here is that they cycle between the multi-species biofilm stage and the planktonic stage. And then they go back and forth between multi-species biofilm, planktonic conditions, multi-species biofilm, planktonic conditions which means that they repeatedly um, pass this community through uh, bottlenecks, selecting for strains that are good at forming biofilms. So they get a population that are particularly good at forming biofilms in a multi-species environment. Uh, and the reason why they're doing that is actually because they want to reduce their pool of mutants so that they get down to only the ones that could be most interesting for the specific question they want to answer. A little bit akin to what we talked about with Marlies earlier on the pod. What they come up with through this protocol is that they find that 
they find 13 genes. Um, and out of those 13, eight of them show uh, a similar induction upon biofilm formation in the monospecies uh, communities and the, or in the monospecies growth and when they're cultured together in a mixed species community condition. Uh, while five genes are specific to the multi-species uh, or have a specific expression pattern in the multi-species uh, communities. And those five genes, I mean, this is a small subset, but that's also sort of their point with the entire study, that they want to get down to a small subset of really, really strong candidates. And those five genes are involved in biofilm formation, epithelial invasion, and antibiotic tolerance. Uh, this is where I think it starts getting quite cool, because these are functions that we, from our own experiments, know are uh, enriched in different ways in multi-species interactions. So one thing that they find is induction of something they call the SPI1 invasion system. And this is a type 3 secretion system that is encoded in um, pathogenicity island uh, in Salmonella. Uh, and, it can be, and it's used for salmonella to invade the intestine epithelium of the host. So that could, for example, be humans. This is, this is actually a very health-relevant discovery that they have, a, have this gene that is involved in invasion of epithelium. Uh, that is actually also induced by multispecies um, competition. Then they go on to investigate these genes in a different way. They follow them up by exposing them to antibiotics. Uh, in the case that they were antibiotic tolerance genes, they follow up by uh, letting them in, uh, actually invade uh, a model with COCO2 cells uh, and show that they are better invaders when they are able to invade together as a triple community as opposed to uh, Salmonella on its own. And I think the, the main take-home message from the first part of the paper is really that the bacterial interactions within these mixed species communities uh, strongly enhances both antibiotic resistance, virulence, and biofilm formation itself. And it's also really cool that, for example, the, um, the uh, deletion of the gene TOL-C, which is involved in, in more biofilm formation, this, this does, not in, uh, does not affect the monospecies biofilm formation, but only the multi-species biofilm formation. So that I also think is a pretty cool indicator that this is actually a gene that is specifically involved in community interactions. And they say that this is specifically uh, competition. Um, I will return to that at the end. The second part here is really um, taking this one step further, and that is uh, they start looking into how Salmonella is detecting the, their, its competitors. And the interesting thing is that they figure out that this is through different stress response mechanisms. So specifically, uh, they find out that the general stress response and the response to oxidative stress is actually triggering these responses that come from competition. So competition triggers a general stress response and an oxidative stress response. And they can show this by knocking out these transcription factors that are involved in these two responses, and then they don't see uh, this competition response anymore. So it's, it's actually a pretty specific experiment that they do to follow this up. But I think it's, 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 it, gets even, it gets even better because then they also ask the question, what is it that uh, these stress responses are responding to in a mixed culture? This is where it gets really interesting because they find out that the, uh, there is a type 6 secretion system 
uh, that it actually in some way attacking um, the other species in this community. Um, so you have a type 6 secretion system that attacks the other bacteria physically, and um, then you have a stress response to that, and that triggers uh, biofilm formation, antibiotic resistance, um, and um, expression of virulence factors. So that's, that's a pretty neat um, cascade of events. And they do this very nicely by also do, then knocking out this type 6 secretion system and seeing that then you don't see this effect anymore, then you don't have this competitive behavior of the community. And they end by saying that these findings suggest that competition might explain a previously reported increase in biofilm formation, tolerance against antimicrobials, and virulence in mixed species communities. It's a good point that competition may, expl uh, may explain that, and it seems like it's pretty likely to be explaining this in this case, but they are also being quite dismissive about uh, other literature suggesting that this could be um, a positive interaction or a synergistic interaction, and I actually don't think that they have a lot of evidence for that, because first of all, they select a triple community of free members that are very, very likely to be competitive. So I don't think that what they're saying here is that generalizable to any kind of community. In a real community, you're pretty likely to have both competitive behavior and synergistic behavior. And I don't think that what they're saying here actually encompasses both of those scenarios. At the same time, I think they have a very compelling mechanism for uh, how this would play out mechanistically with the type six secretion system that they can knock out and then don't see the competitive behavior and the way that they've gone about actually mutating the stress response systems uh, to see that that's actually what triggers these downstream effects. So it's a, it's a very thorough paper. Uh, and I, I, it, has, it raises a lot of really good points. So I actually had a question. Uh, how did they see that uh, oxidative stress uh, induced uh, these genes? I mean, or sorry, how, how did they find that oxidative, oxidative stress was a factor? Oh, actually, it's not oxidative stress. Okay. Uh, so that it is that competition induces the same response as oxidative stress. Huh. Okay, so how, how did I... So, okay. so oh, well, that's, that's another question, how it actually happens, <laughs> but uh, they, they, it's probably it's a response to cell damage in some way. What they also do here is that they actually check that you can you can also induce these genes through oxidative stress. Okay. So they use I think it was paraquat yeah. as a uh, as an oxidative uh, or an oxidative agent, mm -hmm. so that they would specifically look at oxidative stress and they they see these enrichments uh, of the same of the same genes using that method. Um, but I mean, it's I guess it's not actually oxidative stress per se when you have the competition. It could be, mm -hmm. um, but it could, it could also be that oxidative stress, or what we call oxidative stress, uh, might actually be more general than that. Then Next, we're going to talk more about virulence, but this time uh, the other way around. So we're going to discuss the potential to use fatty acids as antivirulence agents. And this is based on a paper that was published last week in Trends of Microbiology. Havila, would you yes. introduce this next topic? Yes, thank you. Um, my 
paper is by Kumar et al. It is fatty acids as antibiofilm and antiviral sensations. So this is a review paper. They write about like how there are updates on the recent advances in the use of fatty acids and also how these uh, naturally occurring compounds can act as antibiofilm and antivirulence agents. So biofilm has this ability like uh, to make the microbes resistance for antimicrobial agents and also host immune systems. So these fatty acids have been identified like uh, many previous works done by other researchers that they selectively inhibit or disrupt the biofilm formation including my favorite organism, P. arugula, which is of interest here. They do uh, lots of work on other organisms as well, but since my uh, interested organism for my thesis is P. arugula, so I'll be talking more about that organism in this paper. So these, there is not really any fixed mechanism or proven mechanism, but they do state that it might act by suppressing the expression of quorum sensing regulated genes especially those that are related to the virulence and also non-quorum sensing targets. And also it has been reported that uh, fatty acids reduce the swarming motility and also virulence and other activities by which like fatty acids might uh, activate the stress regulons, which induce the biofilm dispersion. And they also state how fatty acids can act as signaling molecules and biofilm controlling compounds. Uh, especially the piece uh, arugula secretes cis-2-decanoic acid, which is a chemical messenger. It inhibits the dispersal of preformed biofilms and also biofilm formed by other microbes, including P. arugula itself. This statement, I really didn't understand what they meant by including P. arugula itself. Maybe we can discuss at the end. And also they state about how uh, quorum sensing the cell-to-cell -cell communication for gram-negative and gram-positive bacteria where the gram-negative bacteria utilize a factor of quorum sensing, which is DSL, diffusible signal factor. The gram-negative bacteria, especially ours, uh, or my organism, secretes cis-2 unsaturated fatty acids, which is used to regulate the biofilm formation as well as virulence. And also there is one interesting fact, like there is this interspecies talk between two uh, microbes. One is a cis maltophilia, that is stenotrophomonas maltophilia and P. arugonosa, where this maltophilia generates a DSF, that is a quorum sensing factor, which modulates the virulence and biofilm forming abilities of P. arugonosa. And also for the efficient antibiofilm activity, the state that the Fatty acids with the double bond at the second uh, position are mostly favored. When you consider the candida albicans, there are uh, components like uh, DSF, which is a quorum sensing factor. They really do mimic like uh, fatty acid, which really isn't. And they try to inhibit a uh, few factors that can inhibit virulence genes, thereby inhibiting the hyperformation, which... Uh, inhibits lastly the biofilm formation. And then they state that the antibiofilm and antibacterial nature of fatty acids are not really consistent, but they are dependent on the concentration and also the environment it is present in. And there is one uh, cool thing I really like. It is they have stated the another name for pyrogenosa, which is multilingual micro, which I didn't know till date existed. So it means that it has the capability of sensing more than one type of uh, quorum sensing signal. 
so that it regulates the biofilms and uh, escapes any inhibiting effect of uh, fatty acids by controlling other quorum sensing roots and they concluded in the end by saying uh, they all the non bacterial bactericidal property of fatty acids at low doses that is below min minimal inhibitory concentration they directly are intrinsically safe and also they don't really generate resistance i think that that's so nutty because yeah. I mean, apparently they must have missed like all the work that Don Anderson's lab have been doing on minimal selective concentrations, where they show that the concentrations that select for resistance for antibiotics can be tenfold, hundredfold, mm -hmm. maybe even thousandfold lower mm -hmm. than mm -hmm. the minimal inhibitory concentration. Mm -hmm. It's almost like I'm saying, I would almost say the other way around, the fact that um, they have non-bacteriocidal properties at low doses might mm -hmm might actually be an indication that they would cause resistance mm -hmm. even at those levels. Um, so I, I think this is, I think this is a very, very weird statement. It also echoes something that my PhD supervisor Joachim Larsen mm -hmm. brought up in an opinion paper a couple of years ago on okay. using human, human derived antimicrobial peptides as mm -hmm. antibiotics, which sounds like a really smart idea. They are already part of our own defense system, mm -hmm. so they've got to be good. You just mass produce them. Well, the problem with that is that everything we have used against bacteria this far has rendered resistance. If we find an, an antibiotic in nature and we start using that as an antibiotic with industrial production and everything, when resistance develops, we're back to square one. Mm -hmm. We're back where we started. If we take a substance from the human body that we use as, our nat uh, as part of our natural defense against, uh, against bacteria. And we mass produce that and start using it as an antibiotic treatment and resistance develops to that. We're not back at square one. We have actually brought ourselves further back. We're back at square minus one because we also bypass part of our own protection system that our body produces. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's actually a pretty risky strategy to start going for those human antimicrobial peptides as mm. opposed to antimicrobial peptides you find somewhere else but that are not similar to something we have uh, in our natural human production. So, and I think this sort of echoes the argument there that, mm. oh, these must be perfectly safe because fatty acids are used naturally. Like, mm. eh, not so sure that that's a sign that they are perfectly safe. That's one of the weirdest arguments that they make in mm. this entire paper. Then the other thing that I think that they sort of touch upon, but they mm. sort of squirt it over a little bit. Mm. I don't know if you have given any thought to this, mm. Avila. Which one? It's that, I don't know how easy it would actually be to use something like this clinically. I mean, mm. how would you formulate these fatty acids into a pill or mm. some, time of, some type of, um, medicine that you can actually give to people who are sick uh, because I guess if you take it as a pill you will have a high likelihood of it getting degraded in the stomach mm. uh, and I don't know what's how how easy would it be to sort of inject fatty acids it also seems mm. like a potentially bad idea although I actually must say I know nothing about that have yeah. you have you given any thought to it no not really but they do state that the identification of these fatty acids, like how specifically or on what specifically they really act, like it would be helpful for uh, controlling infectious pathogens. 
that's what they state. Yeah, but I think that the problem is that I think not being totally sure, but mm-hmm. I think all the examples they bring up, or nearly all the examples they bring mm-hmm. up here, are examples of experiments performed essentially in a petri dish or uh, in a in a laboratory system at least. Um, which means that it's kind of easy to just administrate the fatty acid together with an antibiotic, for example. But it's a different thing to administrate it in a petri dish or in a test tube and to give it to a patient in the body. And I actually think that they don't spend a lot of time in this, in this paper discussing if that's even a viable path forward. So for our next and last paper today, we will sort of go back a little bit to something that Emil was talking about, uh, namely to how to evade the immune system. And specifically, we will talk about how Borrelia, the bacterium that is causing Lyme disease, uh, avoids um, the immune system by preventing antibodies to binding to it. And this is based on a study uh, published in March in the journal Cell Reports. Take it away, Anna. Thank you. So the title of this paper is uh, the Borrelia burgdorferi VLC lipoprotein prevents antibody binding to an arthritis-related surface antigen. So Borrelia, um, Borrelia burgdorferi uh, is a bacterium that causes Lyme borreliosis or Lyme disease, and it is a tick-borne uh, illness of human and animals. And if not treated really fast with antibiotics, uh, it can create lifelong arthritis as well as uh, heart inflammation and neurological and cognitive impairments, such as uh, loss of memory and balance. One of the particularly interesting aspects of this disease is that upon infection, there is a rather strong immune response. However, immune system fails to clear the infection, allowing it to persist for decades in the human body. And some studies um, proposed a mechanism for how this bacteria able to uh, evade host immune system. There is a protein called VLC that stands for variable major protein-like sequence expressed. And it is a cell surface protein that is able to change um, its epitopes, the sites that are recognized by antibodies, and therefore making immune system unable to recognize it. So the persistent question, how a single protein is able to confer protection to uh, Borrelia burgdorferi uh, from antibodies that are known to be generated by a large number of proteins expressed on the bacterial cell surface. Among late-stage patients, almost 60% report report, uh, arthritic complications. There is a protein called arthritis-related protein, or IRP, that is associated with development of arthritis in mice model. It is rather interesting since when IRP-specific antibodies are applied, they are able to to clear the um, arthritis symptoms However, they are unable to prevent Borrelia burgdorferi infection in mice. So the authors of this paper, they hypothesized that potentially the VLSE protein can be uh, involved in protecting IRP protein from antibody-mediated immune response. 
So in order to test this hypothesis, they created several clones of Borrelia burgdorferi that is able to produce either RP uh, or VLSC protein or both together. And then they took mice and specifically immunized it with uh, IRP-specific antibodies and challenged with different strains of Borrelia burgdorferi. So the result of this experiment clearly shows that the mice that, which was infected with um, uh, Borrelia burgdorferi uh, strain lacking VLSC protein was successfully able to clear the infection, suggesting that this protein is somehow involved in um, protecting RP protein from the immune response. So in order to uh, further prove that VLAC protein is um, shielding the RP protein from uh, antibodies, the authors performed fluorescent microscopy assays, and they found out that uh, when um, there is no VLAC protein, then the antibodies are successfully bind to RP protein. However, in the presence of uh, VLC protein, they are not recognized uh, arthritis-related protein. So this study brings the first evidence that VLC protein is not only able on its own to escape the immune response, but also helps to protect other proteins such as IRP, uh, from being recognized by antibodies. So in a sense, this is a rather important study that brings um, new perspectives in terms of both vaccine development and future research. So I had a few questions about this, actually, if that's okay. Uh, this arthritis-related protein, I mean, where did it, I mean, it, it, was it expressed by, I mean, I'm guessing it's expressed by uh, Borrelia burgdorferi. Burgundorferi, right? So, so, but I'm guessing they don't get arthritis. So, how do they actually relate this protein to uh, arthritis? Um, so, the only thing they mentioned is that it has the previous studies showed that this protein is associated with uh, onset of arthritis in mice model. Okay. I uh, haven't uh, checked this uh, original yeah. source, but what they say also is that uh, why they started to look at these two particular proteins is that both of them actually upregulated upon infection of mammalian models. Uh, so they thought that in some way they can be connected. And, okay, okay. Yeah. And that was specific for just mammalian models? Yeah. Okay. Because that's another uh, thing that I, I didn't quite understand. They used mm -hmm. skid mice, uh, which is uh, severe combined immunodeficiency mice. Uh, why would they do that if they want to check the immune response? If they, why would they have immunocompromised mice? Uh, I guess to make sure that it is IRP-specific antibodies that they immunize it with that actually help to clear their... Oh, do they inoculate them with ARP yes. antibodies? Oh, yes. oh, okay. they, they I add, missed that. They add the antibodies. Yeah. Okay, I missed that. My bad. Okay, so they want to have specific... Okay, yeah. So they're generating a specific antibody response just against this particular protein. Yeah. All right. Okay. Then it I guess makes it makes very more much sense, sense as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because you're like, hmm, why would you want to have immune-deficient mice if you... Yeah, okay. Yeah, right. I, think, I think the coolest thing I take home from this is really 
one thing that I mean, they when they summarize the paper at the very end, where this where they talk about this uh, variant that they have this protein that acts as a protective um, protective thing um, for um, for the binding site or the antibodies. So what they say is like this mechanism would also offer a more cost-effective means of immune evasion. To devote one protein to evade an adaptive immune response that is targeting another uh, protein uh, that need to be conserved for the survival of the pathogen. So that you have this really essential protein on one hand that you can't really mutate, which means that that would be really smart for the body to form antibodies against that one because that's, that's core to the function of the pathogen. But then you can actually have another protein physically protecting it and let that other protein be very variable uh, so that that takes all the damage. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's almost like you're using one protein as cannon fodder uh, to protect the important proteins from, from the immune system. So I think this is a very, very neat and nasty mechanism. <laughs> it's a paper that quite neatly sums up or it, t- it takes up a lot of the threads uh, that we've been talking about uh, today. I mean, how, how do bacteria become virulent? Uh, is virulent also associated with competition? How can we apply different kind, kind of antivirulence agents? And this is sort of like another side of that. Like you have this bacteria that um, are not really becoming more virulent, but the ability to evade the immune system allows them to be virulent in a sense uh, so I, I, I think this is a it's 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 a short paper but it's it, it carries heavy value it's very neat So, do we learn? Do we learn anything from this collection of papers on virulence? Uh, how close do we? How close do we think we are uh, to have a virulence medicine? Not close. <laughs> well, I mean, like since we've just talked about like in this podcast here, I mean, like there are multiple mechanisms of which bacteria can become res- can become more virulent, right? So, just to say we're gonna get one drug to decrease virulence all over the place, it's it's not gonna happen, man. It's like yeah, no. no, but I think people are talking about antivirulence drugs as a an alternative strategy to antibiotics because uh, the the logic behind that would be that you don't really kill the bacteria, you just don't make them dangerous to humans, uh, and that in that sense it would be beneficial for them to not develop resistance, but instead to, I mean, the best way is just staying around and lose your virulence because then you can still be alive, in some sense. Uh, so, I mean, the, attacking the virulence per se looks like an attractive option on paper. Yeah. Uh, so to wrap up, uh, we're having nice spring weather in Gothenburg right now. Um, but if, if we allow ourselves to dream a little bit and look a little bit into the future, uh, where are you longing now? Where would you travel? Where will you travel when the uh, coronavirus-related travel bans are lifted? I want to visit Thailand. <laughs> Thailand? Of all places? <laughs> Yeah, because I haven't seen and I'm so curious. Oh, okay. Um, Me personally, I'm dreaming very simply. I just want to sit outside at the pub and drink a beer. That's what I want. 
I, I, I was going to guess that you would say like me, I want to visit Kunga. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been an awesome response to that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not. I have even even less high hopes right now. I just wanna I just wanna sit in the sun, man. Anna, where are you going? Well, I think I also wouldn't go that far, but I really miss all the um, like live music concerts. That would be so nice when it comes back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm actually really. I, I wouldn't say I'm I'm missing it, but I mean, like I've gotten tickets for Iron Maiden this summer, and I'm, they haven't cancelled it yet. But I'm really just like they've cancelled the Olympics. There's no way that that this is going to stay open, and the Olympics is going to be <laughs> no way. Well, Iron Maiden is slightly heavier than the Olympics. Yeah, so I don't know. of course. And there's a correlation between like how how resistant you are against COVID and how heavy it is. Yes. yes. I think for me personally, I, I'm longing. I'm longing quite much to just be able to visit my parents yeah. in Uppsala, or the other way around. Yeah. So, I think that's a wrap. Uh, we'll be back again in June with more discussions on science and life in academia, and some updates on how EMIL's thesis defense that is due to happen now in early June, how that went. Um, so until then, good luck, EMIL. Thank you. Take care of yourselves and stay healthy, all of you. Take care. Thank you. I would also like to um, reach out with a special thanks to Marlies Böhm, who joined us today uh, to, for a very interesting discussion on novel antibiotic resistance genes. Uh, as we said in the beginning of the pod, this um, podcast was recorded on the 7th of May. If you want to get in touch with us, uh, you can either reach out on podcasts at microbiology.se by email. Or you could tweet at Bengtsson Palme, that's one single word, on Twitter. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the pod. If you like what you're hearing, um, we're very happy to get five-star reviews in the podcast store where you get your podcast. Thank you very much.